We have no king but Caesar. That's what they said. And that's one way religious people survive under oppression. Compromise. Accommodate. Learn how to live in the cold shadow of empire. And occasionally, dare to ask for special treatment in return for good behavior. There are other ways. Go into hiding, underground, or out in the open, but behind walls, literal walls or walls of culture. Create an alternative world and never leave it. Ignore the oppressor, and the oppressor will leave you alone for a while. There's open opposition, revolution at great risk and cost. It means using the empire's violent methods against the empire. It means compromising principles for an end that will justify the means if it works. If it doesn't work, it helps to have a theology that glamorizes martyrdom. There was hardly a generation or two in the history of ancient Israel when the nation was not under threat from enemies near and far even within, or under siege, or under occupation by far greater powers, the forces of empire. The Old Testament tells us that the people of Israel tried all three tactics and sometimes all at once. Most of the prophets favored opposition, or at least resistance. They condemned compromise, and they counted on God to vindicate and liberate the nation. Most of the kings and priests chose the first option, though most stopped short of saying, we have no king but the emperor. At least they didn't say it out loud. And the history of the church has been pretty much the same, whether dealing with empires or more or less democratically elected governments. Today, the religious elite of Jerusalem, with at least a few Jerusalemites and other Judeans who come for the show, stand just outside Pilate's court, determined to get the oppressor to do their will, whatever it takes. And Pilate may see no threat in Jesus, but Jesus questions the legitimacy, impugns the righteousness, and predicts the fall of the temple and its clergy. They're afraid of Jesus and the power they believe Jesus has over the people, the common people. And Jesus is an outsider who has managed to reach deep inside and make trouble with a capital T, which rhymes with P, and that stands for Pilate, the only one with real power to stop Jesus. They've compromised. They've adjusted to life under Roman oppression. They do their religious duty and turn a blind eye to what goes on outside the temple, beyond the city, throughout the country. They keep the peace, at least for themselves. And today, they want some payback for their efforts or their lack of effort to change anything. We have no king but Caesar. They call Jesus a blasphemer, and now they shout the greatest blasphemy of all, putting Caesar on God's throne. 
They accept the empire's violence as the only way to do what they say is God's work. Jesus says power only comes from above. But it seems that here on earth it's up to us as to whether we use power for good or evil. The late Billy Graham never refused an invitation from a politician, and certainly not from a president of the United States. And he was accused of accommodation and compromise many times. And some of those politicians used his name and his supposed blessing for their own purposes. Now, we may or may not accept Billy Graham's argument when he said that he took every opportunity, including the opportunities others wouldn't accept, so he could advance his mission and preach the gospel. And he said, it is the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. And once Billy Graham was asked what he thought about the rise of the Christian right in the United States, and he said this, it would disturb me if there was a wedding between the religious fundamentalists and the political right. The hard right has no interest in religion except to manipulate it. Now, since then, many American Christians, Billy's son Franklin among them, have consummated that relationship that Billy Graham feared. Jerry Falwell Jr. believes all is well in America because Christians now have, he says, a dream president. And he's tweeted, Jesus said, love our neighbors as ourselves, but never told Caesar how to run Rome. Well, maybe so. But Jesus' followers were soon declared Caesar's enemies for doing things like feeding the hungry and sheltering widows and orphans and treating slaves and citizens and soldiers and patricians as equals in the church. And, oh yes, refusing to acknowledge Caesar as Lord and a God. The powerful of this world have no interest in religion except to manipulate it. But it's also too often true that religious people have no interest in power except to use it to manipulate others into doing their bidding. So why not say if you don't do this, you are not Caesar's friend, and we have no king but Caesar, if it gets you what you want. Or say, it's okay if the leader of a nation doesn't live or behave as a Christian should, and give him a mulligan for things like his adulteries, because he listens to us and does what we want, and ignores or even punishes the people we don't like. So, why not? And let's not feel superior because Canadian politicians are actively courting faith groups, making promises they know will comfort at least some religious people and win their votes. And I'll agree with Jerry Falwell Jr. on one thing. In response to his opponents, he said, well, Christians can vote liberal or conservative and still be Christians. Well, everything else he says tells us which choice he believes is more Christian. 
But it's true. As individuals, you and I may believe one party is better than another and more likely to uphold our personal values. We may conclude one party's priorities are closer to the vision and values of God's kingdom as we understand them. So we can disagree among ourselves about party politics and policies. So long as we agree that no party, no elected government, no leader perfectly represents what God wants for the world. We are free to choose who we will vote for. How often we take that for granted. It is such a great privilege in this world. But we can't expect our vote to buy privilege or protection for us and our religion or for anyone and any religion. It's our responsibility as Christians to set every word, every promise, every policy beside the gospel. Test every decision, no matter which party is in power, against the words and example of Jesus. But we can't expect perfect matches. Not every time. And unlike some Christian leaders and some Christian politicians, we must never say we are certain God's will is done. And God calls us to pray for our leaders. And all who aspire to lead us, pray for them all. But still be aware that no one, no human being, acts from perfectly pure motives. Be suspicious of any politician who uses religious words to woo faithful people. And be suspicious of any religious leader, including this one, who doesn't maintain a critical distance from those who hold power or want to hold power. I know I do at times fall to the temptation to curse some and crown others. But never forget to get what they want. Those leaders of Jerusalem and the people they influence to get what they want done, done, they crown Caesar and curse the king of kings. There's a fourth way for people of faith to live in the presence of worldly power, in the shadows of empires, violence, nationalism, militarism, consumerism, forces that divide and more often than we realize visions and values that conquer minds and hearts. Compromise, withdrawal, violence are not the only options. There's a way that's deeply embedded in our reformed Christian heritage. Presbyterians haven't always been faithful to it, but we can be if we will. In a democracy, we believe the Christian's attitude to those who lead, those who aspire to lead, those who have power to govern or seek it. Our role is to be engaged, involved, active, engaged, informed, to pay attention, to look for what's going on, informed, respectful, always aware that aspiring to leadership, assuming leadership makes huge demands on any fallible human being, respectful, 
constructive critics. Richard Rohr is a Franciscan priest who writes on faith and life. And he says, Jesus showed no undue loyalty either to his Jewish religion nor to his Roman-occupied Jewish country. Instead, he radically critiqued both of them. And in that, he revealed and warned against the idolatrous relationships that most people have with their country and their religion. It has allowed us to justify violence in almost every form and to ignore much of the central teaching of Jesus. No, not judges. Engaged, informed, respectful, constructive critics. Not afraid to ask tough questions. Prepared to speak up when there's to speak up when there's reason for gratitude and praise, and to speak up when there's good reason to protest. And we have a special task following in Jesus' footsteps, to be voices for those who can't speak or those who speak but aren't heard, and people who don't enjoy the freedoms and the prosperity that we so take for granted. No, Jesus didn't tell Caesar how to run Rome. He did affirm the ancient law, commanding us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And his words and actions shed light into dark places, revealing injustice and oppression, sin. And not just in the Roman Empire, not just in Palestine, not just within religion, but in all the world. And we see him today standing shedding light on the world at its worst, accepting the worst the world can throw at him, revealing truth about humanity and how easy it is to say, we have no king but Caesar, even when God is not just watching, but is present right there. Richard Rohr reminds us all, if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. If Jesus is Lord, then the economy and stock market are not. If Jesus is Lord, then my possessions, country, and job are not. If Jesus is Lord, then I am not. <laughs>